Thanks, Ben, and particularly thanks, Aurora. That was great. And thank you, Matt, for uh, offering me the opportunity to talk this morning. It's uh, great to be here with amongst you all and to, to lead us and talk, think a bit about God's Word this morning. Any of you uh, spent time uh, two weeks ago chasing Taylor Swift tickets? Hands up, all those who did. <laughs> yeah, <coughs> you can see the Swifties amongst us. Yeah, right. Well, I did too. Um, I, amongst, uh, depending on who you read, somewhere between 800,000 and 4 million other Australians, spent a significant number of hours online uh, last, uh, the Wednesday and Thursday, Friday before last. Um, and like most of you, uh, I didn't even get the tickets. I didn't even get past the waiting room. It's a frustrating and somewhat annoying experience. Now, you say to me, Roger, are you a Swifty? And the answer is, no, I'm not, I'm sorry. Uh, I, the young people are all horrified. But, so why did I buy the tickets? Why did I chase tickets uh, that, on that, they spend those two days being wasting time? Well, the reason was, of course, that my grandkids are Swifties. Okay, I've got a number of grandkids. And um, they happened to be in far north Queensland in an area where there was no internet reception. So they couldn't actually go online themselves. Yes, there are places in Australia where you still can't get the internet. Um, so they said to me, Grandpa, will you buy us tickets, please? And um, I wasn't enthusiastic. Okay? <coughs> I lacked a little bit of enthusiasm for this. And so I said to them, well, what's so great about Taylor? Why do you want me to spend my hard-earned time uh, buying tickets for you? And their response was a little over the top. Okay? Um, but it boiled down to three things. They said, Taylor's the best singer in the world. Taylor's the best songwriter in the world, and Taylor's the best dancer in the world. Now, I can see amongst your bases that, in fact, many of you agree with them. Um, but because of those three things, they argued, we need to see her. Okay? We must see her. And I must admit, my enthusiasm was still minimal. You see, I think there are better singers in the world than Taylor Swift. Okay? I mean, for instance, Terry could... <laughs> Kirite Kanawa or Sarah Brightman, they're both better singers. But my grandkids never heard of them. And then I thought, well, songwriters. Okay, well, Bob Dylan, he's trying to picture there. Um, he's missing. Okay, Bob Dylan's there, okay. John Prine, both better singers. Both are better songwriters. And even, even Radiohead is better than, than uh, the songwriters, okay? So, fair enough then. So, Again, they hadn't heard of any of those people. I suspect most of you have heard of John Prine. Okay, but he's the most brilliant songwriter. But I do agree that she writes some interesting lyrics. Okay, so I'm starting to bend a little bit. And then they said the best dancer. Well, of course, they're not the best dancers. Fred Astaire and Rudolf Nairov leave Taylor for dead when it comes to dancing. Okay, but um, they'd never heard of them either. So <laughs> the education of the young is severely lacking. Okay, And they got concerned then because they thought, Grandpa's going to say no. He's not going to waste his time doing that. And so my 10-year-old granddaughter said to me, you've got to buy it. You've got to don't you understand. She's awesome and amazing and she's cool and she's righteous. Okay? Now, that stopped me. Right? Because you see, yes, maybe I can see she's awesome and but righteous. Interesting word, righteous. The word righteous means right with God. And 
And I wasn't certain about that. I don't know Tata's relationship with God, so I wasn't happy to say she's righteous and work with that. Then I also thought, you know what? There is one singer, brilliant singer-songwriter and dancer that we know, that I know of, and who is actually righteous in the term of being right with God. And of course, that singer-songwriter is King David and dancer. How do I know that David wrote incredibly insightful and meaningful lyrics? And how do I know he was righteous in God's eyes? Because we have his words written down for us. The Psalms, they're not all written by him, but the Psalms that he wrote show us tremendous lyrical insight and meaningfulness. And, not only that, but we know that he danced before God. And we know that when he was in the fields, searching his sheep, that he played to them and he sang to them. So, David is someone who is righteous in terms of awesome and inspiring and a great lyricist. But he's also righteous because of what he tells us in his relationship with God. And we see that in Psalm 5. In Psalm 5, we see David's relationship with God. And he explains what it means to be righteous in this song. The theme of Psalm 5 is righteousness. How to be right with God. So with this understanding and expectation, let's look at Psalm 5. But first, let's pray. Lord, as you open your word this morning and continue considering all that you lay out for us there, please help us to see you more clearly through your relationship with David and to understand more fully who you are, to accept your words and to do your will in our lives. Amen. Psalm 5 states, like so many of the Psalms, with a plea to God. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help. My King and my God, for you I pray. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. We learn a lot about David's opening, about David's relationship with God from these opening words. You see. He can bring his deepest concerns and he can be confident that God will listen to them, that that God will hear his plea and act upon it. And that's a relationship that we'd all like to know and have. Um, I was playing a game of, of cheap monopoly with my grandkids last night, four of them, and it was horrible. Okay, They kept arguing, they kept fighting, and I pleaded with them. I said, please stop fighting. Please stop arguing. Please. And you know what they did? They ignored me. They kept on fighting. They kept on arguing. And they kept arguing around the place. And I realised that most of the time, my pleas to my grandchildren are pretty hit and miss. Sometimes they'll respond. Other times they won't. We need to understand that God's not like that. God listens and hears David's pleas. He's not like that in that he responds the way that uh, is good for, for, for David and is good for us. And David is confident that God will not only hear his words and understand them, but he is confident that he will respond in a way that is best for him. So his opening plea gives us a further in, in, sorry, and this opening plea gives us further insight into this relationship with David and God. It's one of confidence in God but it's also one of submission David doesn't demand that God respond to him immediately 
and he doesn't presume what that response will be. What he does is he lays his requests before him and waits. You see, their relationship is characterised by David's dependence and on and a submission to God. David knows that God is sovereign. And whilst he, David, may be a king, and he is, he's not able to command or demand anything of God. And so the communication of his need, his prayer, is couched in terms that reflect his dependency on God and his submission to God's will. So this opening part, we can see the depth of David's relationship. Not only is he able to bring his needs before God in openness and confidence to be answered, but he can also bring them before him in you know, trusting that what will happen, that God will respond, uh, that he is, God has the power for him to respond. Now, I look at that relationship and I think, how did he get that relationship? How is it possible that David, who we also know from Scripture, was a significant sinner, is in a relationship with God? How can he be in such a great relationship with God? And you know, David's aware of the conundrum, that conundrum too. And he has the answer, but he doesn't give it just yet. What he does is he switches his focus from his need to God's character. He says, you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant can't stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies and bloodthirsty and deceitful men. The Lord abhors. David's relationship is based on his knowledge of God's character. He knows and understands who God is. He understands the aspects of God's character that concern David at the present time. He knows that his concerns lie up with God's concern, align with God's concern, because the attitude, because he's, he's, he's in, in sync with God. And David knows that God's a holy God. And because of that, he cannot abide evil. He will not allow those who are wicked to be in his presence, God hates those who do wrong, those who lie and deceive. And David is suffering at the hands of those who lie, deceive and do wrong when he's writing this, this, uh, this song. We're not certain when he wrote it, but it's most probable that David writes this song while he's fleeing for his life after his beloved son Absalom has led a rebellion against him. We read about that in, in 2 Kings, 2 Samuel actually. Uh, he's been forced from his palace David's no longer in his seat of power. He's travelled across the wilderness and probably around uh, a river. But David knows that God knows the situation he's in. And he knows that God is offended by Absalom's behaviour. So this knowledge of God's character gives David confidence to bring his concern before him because he knows that as his concern aligns with God's concerns, God will act to deal with them. His confidence to leave things in God's hand, he's confident to leave things in God's hand, and he's willing to await the response. Why? Because he knows that God is in control of him and of his world. David's seen God at work in his life. He's been taken from being a shepherd to being king because of God. 
He knows that he's part of God's plan because God has explained it to him. And he knows that what God wants for him is good things. But he also has this problem. David knows himself and he knows he's a sinner and he knows he's evil in God's eyes and that God can't take pleasure with him either. So he acknowledges one of the great truths of human existence (coughs) and that is that he is basically unacceptable to God in his own, in his own, on his own worth. The only thing that makes him acceptable to God is the fact that God has shown him mercy. As he says in verses 7 and 8, But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make straight your way before him. It's only in God's mercy that David can come into God's presence and that he can be in a relationship with a holy God. And you'll note that as he makes this statement, there's no sense of self-rightness. There's no sense of, you know, I deserve this or God, you must do this for me. There's only gratitude and humility. And this is the key point of the psalm. This is why its theme is righteousness. You see, it's only because he's been granted righteousness by God that David can bring this plea to him. It's only because of his granted righteousness that David is able to stand before God's holy character without running from him. And it's only because he's been granted righteousness through God's mercy that he's able to bow in reverence before him in the temple. Because he understands God's mercy, God's mercy, and the importance of God seeing him as being righteous, he makes a plea for God to lead him in this righteousness further. It's a plea not only for God to grant him righteousness, but enable him to continue in the relationship that he enjoys. Here we see David acknowledging that the prime mover in his relationship with God is God himself. There's nothing that David has done or can do that has created this relationship with God. It's all been done by God. It's God's mercy that enables him to come into God's presence. It's God's power that will hold him in relationship, despite the powerful attacks of his enemies. And it's God's leadership that will enable him to continue to be counted as righteous. You see, David desires to remain in relationship with God. That's his greatest desire. He wants to remain righteous in God's eyes. He knows that he, he has a part to play in maintaining his righteousness. He needs to live righteously. And he knows he can't do that without God's help. And so we see that, that prayer, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. And he says, make straight your way before me. These are requests for God to continue to act in his life. Basically what he's saying is, Lord, take my hand and pull me along the path of doing right. And whilst you're at it, make that path really clear. Make it straight and smooth so I can walk it easily and not get lost. It's a prayer many of us would would, um, repeat, I think. Because walking the straight path can be quite difficult. Uh, Ros and I, my wife, 
do a bit of bushwalking when we were able. And uh, three weeks ago, we were in the Flinders Ranges, uh, in, in the Flinders Chase National Park in South Australia. Uh, and we came to a, a fork in the path. Uh, we weren't certain what direction to take. Uh, it was getting dark. We'd left our walk a bit late. It was cold and threatened to rain. And I worked out that we needed, we had about another four kilometres to walk to get back to the car. And we came to this spot where, because of the fires that had been there, the, the pathway had been burnt and was, was lost. Um, and it was important we didn't take the wrong path. Because when you're in a situation, you get a bit anxious. You get a bit uptight. And we were getting a little bit grumpy with each other. And our relationship might have been suffering a bit if I'd taken the wrong turn. Um, you know, I would expect Ross, of course, to, to support me. But... Um, wasn't quite what I hoped for. Um, so fortunately, I pulled out my mobile phone and caught up Google Maps and we had sufficient reception in the middle of nowhere to be able to see where we were, which way we should go. Our relationship was maintained on that case because of Google. David's plea is a bit like that. He doesn't want his relationship with God to suffer and so he seeks his guidance. He says, please tell me what to do so I can live your way. He didn't use Google. He had a far stronger map. Okay? And so this plea is, is David saying, look, I know that I've got to live your way and I know I can't do that. Enable me to do it because I'm in the midst of turmoil and stress and my current situation is concerning and I can't do what you want me to do, but Lord, grant me the power of doing that. And he knows that will be answered. And having made this claim about righteousness, he then brings his psalm to an end. He starts to bring his psalm to an end. And he does that by concluding the contrast to the outcome of a life of unrighteousness with the outcome of the life for those who are righteous. We see that in these last four verses. David's a victim of injustice <coughs> and he's in this <coughs> deceit in his current situation. And I think when I put myself in that sort of situation when I'm a victim of injustice, I get tempted to respond uh, in terms of despair and anger and frustration and annoyance and retaliation. And I can understand that David would have been feeling the same. When I first started reading those verses, I think, yeah, David's angry and uptight. And so he is responding that way. Not a word from their heart can be trusted, from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart's filled with destruction. Their throats are open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins. For they've rebelled against you. His words are angry. They are despairing and they are retaliatory. For you see, he's pleading with God to judge his enemies. To bring about their downfall and to banish them permanently out of his presence. Basically, uh, David is saying, cast these people into hell for what they've done. He's cursing them. And we can think that this is for his benefit. But the last few words of verse 10, they have rebelled against you, give us a deeper insight into the depths of David's concern. The real reason for his curse. You see, David's concern is not ultimately with his enemies' rebellion against him, His concern is with his enemy's rebellion against God. Yes, 
David's suffering personally because of their rebellion. He's hurt and he's afraid and it's obvious life's pretty miserable for him. But still, even in those circumstances, his major concern is that what his enemies are doing is setting themselves up against God. They're wanting to destroy what God is doing. And because of the depth and importance of David's relationship with God, he's motivated to ask God in such strong words to punish them. This is not the only part in the Psalms where we get this plea to punish. It's called an imprecation. There are some 20 Psalms that are regarded as imprecatory Psalms. And they all have a common theme, a common situation where they plead for God to punish those who do wrong as a major component of the psalm. And the important thing to notice about implications is that, in this implication, is that David is not pleading for judgment for his personal sake. It's not about him. He's not pleading to get revenge for what's happened to him. Rather, he's pleading for them to be judged for the sake of God's plans. He wants what God wants. People to be in relationship with God and live how God wants them to live. And then to force that home, he compels the, he compares the situation of being excluded, expelled, with the situation of being included if you are righteous. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever... Hang on. Stop working. But let all of you who take refuge in you... Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favour as with a shield. You'll notice the tone of the psalm changes. David can rejoice and take refuge in his relationship with God, for he knows that God will care for and bless him, and that he would experience God's favour throughout his life as he continues to live out his relationship with him. And that's why David's song ends in this high note of joy, expectation and gladness. He's joyful that despite the evil that's happening around him, he is safe, and he will be protected from it. And there's expectation that God's favour is with him and will enable him to live the life that God wants him to live. And gladness that he's in relationship with God and that God will grant him righteousness because of his mercy. That's the sort of relationship that I want to be in with God. And I hope it's the relationship that you want to be in. It's a relationship of being granted righteousness. A relationship that God brings about, not that we deserve. And the benefits of righteousness, David's told, laid out for us. And they are that being right with God grants us access to him through prayer so we can share our deepest thoughts and worries and concern with him knowing that he will respond. And these benefit of righteousness is that it results in us being able to come into his presence in confidence and without fear we can be near God without being afraid of him. And we see that being right with God means that we align our plans and desires with God's plans and desires because of that. We have an insight not only into what God is doing, but we know that his, when our plans are aligned, he will continue to support and care for us. Because of that, we also know that he will lead us 
and he will enable us to live righteously despite our weakness, despite our sinfulness. And finally, we know that being right with God means we live under his protection now and forever. We can rejoice in his blessings and be the recipients of his favour for eternity. These are the benefits of being righteous. These are the benefits of living the way God wants us to live and being in relationship with him. But there's a question, isn't there? The question is, how do we do that? Well, in the same way that David was the recipient of God's mercy and love, so we are as well. He makes us righteous. We see in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 3, verses 21 to 24, we read, But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. You see, such was God's love for us that he sent his only son to die on the cross for us. Christ bought us our redemption when he died. And we have all sinned. We've all been in rebellion against God. And the judgment that we deserve because of that, it was taken by Jesus. The curse that David called down on his enemies, and which quite rightly could have fallen on us, fell upon Jesus. He died so that we could live in relationship with God and so that we could be granted righteousness. He died that we could, so that we could know and experience the protection and the blessing and favour that David knew. As Romans 3.22 says, we become righteous in God's eyes by having faith in Jesus. Faith that he was the Son of God, that he died to take on himself the consequences of our sin and rose again. And like David, we need to remember that we have a part to play in living God's way. We have a part to play in walking the path of righteousness. How do we do that? Once we've come into relationship with God through faith in Christ, then we need to continue to live out that relationship in the way we live with others. And John gives us the answer or the instruction of how to do that in chapter 4 of his first letter. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You see, our response is to live rightly by loving others as God has loved us. When we demonstrate God's love to those around us, we become God's hands and feet and his voice. In a very real way, we bring his care and protection to his people. We fulfill what he requires of us. We also live rightly by aligning our desires and plans with God's desires and plans as he's expressed them in his word. This means we study his word and we meet with his people. We spend time in prayer and meditation and we see how it is that God can work in our lives and how we need to live our lives in whatever we're doing. In our work situation, our families, our social situations, um, with our sport. We need to be learning about how we can live out our relationship with God 
in our relationship with others. In this way, we all grow in relationship with God and enjoy those full benefits of being his children. In this way, we can truly be regarded or described as being righteous. Now you may have noticed that I uh, never actually told you how my granddaughters convinced me that I needed to spend those hours trying to get tickets for them. Well, when they saw I wasn't really convinced by their arguments about Taylor's wonderful characteristics, my ten-year-old granddaughter stopped and said, Grandpa, Grandpa, would you please get us these tickets simply because you love us? Ah. And you know, that's why I spent all that time and energy in that vain pursuit of the, those goals. What? Because I wanted to maintain our relationship. Now, my love for my grandkids is only a very pale reflection of God's love for us. My sacrifice of a few hours for their benefit is minuscule compared to God's sacrifice of his son. But the reason why God grants us righteousness is simply because he loves us and he made us. And the reason that he guides us how to live righteously is simply because he wants us to continue being in relationship with him. And that's the challenge of Psalm 5. If we're not in relationship with God, then we need to come into relationship with him by putting our faith in Jesus as the risen Son of God. And if we are in relationship with him, then the challenge is to continue to show his love to the world by loving others as he has loved us. Let's pray. Thank you for David's wisdom, O Lord, and thank you for his experience, which he's written down and which you've preserved for us. Lord, help us to be like him. Help us to make being in relationship with you our greatest desire. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die for us. And Lord, please lead us in your righteousness. Make your way smooth before us. Enable us to be the people you want us to be. Amen.